Somebody asked me how I was. Did I hear that right? Good morning. How are you? I am great. Thank you. Uh, if you want to open to 1 Corinthians, we are back there after a couple of week break. Um, we had Easter last week, of course, uh, and, and that was, it's always a good reminder, right? The, the theme of the, the morning was preach the gospel to yourself every day. We need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel so often in our lives and, and make sure that it, it, when we are confronted with the truth of the gospel, there's no place for arrogance. And there's no place for I deserve and all of those things. It just becomes our hearts soften and we realize just how, uh, how much a gift God's grace is. And, and that's something we need to be reminded of often. Uh, but this morning, I'm excited to be back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, if you have a little heading above chapter 8, what does it say in your heading? Food offered to idols. This is as appropriate and practical as it gets for us. Right? This is actually, in our culture, we don't have to deal with this. There are cultures in the world that do have to deal with this. However, I actually am going to argue this morning that this, these 13 verses in chapter 8 are actually amongst the most practical in all of Scripture uh, for us. Oh, oh, I'm getting a, is it not working? Is, is it bouncing around? I, I'm, I'm going to blame Nick. Nick, if you're watching, he moved it. Is that better? Is it not bouncing now? Oh, is it still bouncing? Okay, hang on. Oh, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I can't see anything. Well, just, how's that? Is that better? Maybe? Okay, we're just going to try and just filter out the knocking noise if you hear. Um, so yeah, so before we begin uh, reading the text, I want to ask you a question. And this question is one that is kind of a rhetorical one just for you to consider and to think about as we read through the text, and you'll see how it relates in a few moments here. Have you ever been technically correct and lost sight of everything and been very wrong? You don't need to answer that. We all know the answer is yes. No, um, it, it's something for us to consider, right? Is, is in our quest for sometimes proving a certain point, we lose sight of actually the big picture of everything that's happening. And while we're technically, or, or in this case, and, and this happens often in the church, theologically correct about something, we can lose sight of everything. And, and we can really do some damage. And that's what Paul's going to talk about here in this text this morning. So let's read this together, chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. It says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are, or excuse me, for whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all of us possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul begins this section, right? He says, now concerning food offered to idols, uh, if you have forgotten, we've entered a section here, the last couple of chapters, where Paul is addressing some things that were taught uh, sorry, some things that were written to him uh, in a letter. And we no longer have this letter, but the context of it makes it very clear that the Corinthians had asked Paul several questions or were seeking clarification on several issues. And we've looked at a number of those issues. Now is this issue about food offered to idols. Well, like I said, we don't really have to deal with that issue uh, in our churches today in this part of the world. But just like any issue that we have, the people in Corinth, there was many different opinions. Some thought, no, this is fine. It's good. There's no problem. It doesn't matter. An, an idol is nothing. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then some were saying, no, you shouldn't do that because you're actually partnering into a, a relationship or your relationship is entering into a partnership with idols and that's wrong and you shouldn't do that. And so the first few verses, this Paul deals with the theological aspect of it, but then he takes it way further into a, while theologically this, there's something more important to consider. And I think this is true for us as well. And, and I don't want you to get hung up on meat sacrificed to idols as much as the overarching theme that's going to present itself through this entire thing. And, and it's found very clearly in verse 1. Concerning food offered to idols, we know this. All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, if you just remember back before I get too far ahead here, there's quotations you'll see in many of your translations. All of us possess knowledge, in quotations. Uh, scholars are kind of divided exactly in, in one of two ways, which this means, but they end in the same place, so it really doesn't matter. Is either these were direct things that the people in Corinth had written to Paul, and he was just quoting it right out of their letter, or they were slogans, popular sayings that people in Corinth said that Paul was then going to clarify and correct. So either way, we end in the same place. And in this, we need to go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the context of this idea of knowledge. In the Greek culture, knowledge was everything. Right? This intellectual ascent. It's where they found purpose and meaning. Their identity was placed in this. Some scholars say it this way, this is what separates humans from the animals is our ability to reason and think. Unless you watch videos of octopuses trying to get out of jars on YouTube, if you've ever seen that, they can reason probably better than I can in some senses. But this is the problem, is they're so concerned with knowledge, with, with being correct about every little aspect of things, that they've forgotten what Paul says is the most important thing. Knowledge, it makes you arrogant. But love, love builds up one another. And that's the overall theme of what's going to happen here. Paul's going to say, well, are you correct in something? Okay, maybe, but are you loving? 
Are you treating your brothers and sisters with the kindness and the grace and the mercy of Christ, or are you more concerned about being right? And if you are, there's a very, very big problem within our hearts that needs to be dealt with. All of us possess knowledge. All of us do, right? So Paul says that. And I don't think Paul's arguing with that is God has given us brains to use. God has given us great wisdom, but not at the expense of other people. Not at the expense of running others down or treating them as less than yourselves. This this arrogance that Paul has dealt with over and over in the beginning of the book is starting to creep in again. He's trying to say, look, all of you possess knowledge. But that's kind of not the point. And in verse 2, he says it this way, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. It's kind of a funny sentence, isn't it? Basically, maybe we could say it this way, is the more that we think we know, the less that we actually know. Isn't that true based on what we read in Scripture? The more that we study, the more the bigger God becomes and the more we realize we need to learn and the less we actually realize we really, truly actually know. And that's not meant in this negative way of like, oh, I'm never going to be able to figure out anything about God. And it's the exact opposite. Is the more intimate we become in a relationship with him and the more amazing he is, the more we desire to be in relationship with this person, with this God. One commentator said it this way, while knowledge may make a man look big, it is only love that can make him grow to his full stature. That's exactly the point of what Paul's trying to say. He's trying to just be very, very clear. Mark Taylor writes it this way. This is good too. He says, the important thing is not, is not what one knows per se, but by whom the person is known and the implications of that knowledge. To be known of God is to be in covenant with him. Right? Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul's trying to take this, this, under, this logic of in your, your, your own intelligence and to say it's not actually about what you know, but who you're known by. Are you known by the King of Kings? Does God intimately know you? Because then that changes everything. And, and we've seen this lots, is there are those who are just very intellectually at a high, high level. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily immediately want to be in a good relationship with them. Sometimes you can feel very talked down to, very condescended towards. Just because knowledge is elevated, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden that relationship is good. Now, Paul's not arguing that uh, knowledge is unimportant. I, I don't think we ever see that in Scripture. And in fact, most of Paul's letters in the New Testament are written to churches to correct some bad theology and to teach them what is true and what is right. But not at the expense of loving one another. And so those go hand in hand. And the Corinthians, in their culture, tend to move off to this side of knowledge and forget about love. And Paul's trying to bring them back to And depending on the culture that we live in, both extremes are present and both are wrong. If we love someone so much that we don't want to correct or don't want to teach or don't want to discipline, well, that's not loving. We may think it's loving. A parent who refuses to correct a child's behavior and just say, it'll all work out in the end. That's not a very loving, considerate thing to do. 
We have to hold these in balance, and that's the issue that Paul's saying here, and that's the problem that he wants to deal with. So he gets back to it. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Now, in quotes again, and then there is only one God. So technically, Paul's saying, yes, I agree with you. Theologically, an idol is nothing. So we know that. That's okay. This idea of one God, this is a, a Jewish thing that goes back to Deuteronomy 6. And it was a very important prayer that all Jews learned, and it's called the Shema. And it begins by saying this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the basis of pretty much every prayer that started. This was that reminder that God is God alone. He is the one true God. But as Leon Morris points out, now the Christian was no less sure of this than the Jew. They understand there is one God and there is only one God. But then Paul makes this clarification. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and there's many gods and many lords, and it seems almost as a contradiction. And so I want to read to you a quote which I think Richard Pratt writes this very well. It's a little bit longer, so just stay with me here for a minute. He says this. We have to be careful not to misunderstand Paul's intentions here. Paul believed in an evil spiritual reality behind pagan idolatry. In accordance with other proportions of scriptures, he believed that idolaters worship demons. Later in this epistle, he acknowledges as much when he says the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons and warned against participating too closely with these demonic rituals. For this reason, we can be sure that when Paul said that idols are nothing at all, he was not making a straightforward assertion. Instead, he spoke by a way of comparison with the glory and honor of the true God of Israel. So if, if that's not clear, let me say it this way. There are uh, demonic forces at work in our world. We know that, we read that in scripture, and they do have a sense of power. What Paul is arguing is that you, a Christian, you, Christian, you are safe because you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. An idol has, a, a, a demon has no authority over your life and can do nothing. So in that sense, an idol has no value and it is just complete garbage. So technically, yes, but he's also trying to say, but look, there's also more to this than your simple assertion that that means nothing. I just don't have anything to worry about. Why? Well, he says, verse 7, however, not all of us possess this knowledge. He's saying not everyone knows this. Not everyone within the church recognizes that the Lord is one and that his authority is far stretching beyond any uh, opposition forces at work. Not everyone knows that. And we can kind of sit here and go, well, that, that seems crazy. Like, why would they think that? But we have to take ourselves out of this and put, them, put ourselves in the context in which the Corinthians would have been saved. This Greek group of people who lived in a very polytheistic nation, which simply means there were many, many gods that they worshipped. And there were different gods that you prayed to for different things. And, and if you actually remember going back into Acts 17, Paul is walking around Athens, which is another Greek city not far from Corinth, and he's, he's reading all these inscriptions to all these various idols that are all over the place to these various gods that they're worshipping. And then he comes across one and it says, to the what? To the unknown god. And commentators talk about how the, or the, the Greeks were so concerned that they were going to miss some god 
that they created this category of this unknown one that they would pray to him even though they didn't know what he or she might do or not do. They were so concerned. So, so this is the culture in which they've come out of a very polytheistic, many gods, and, and all of a sudden now they've been taught, no, there's actually one true God. And all those other things are just demonic forces at work within your world. But they have to now process this. And I think we're foolish if we think that our culture and our upbringing doesn't impact the way in which we understand God and the way in which we understand Scripture. It does for all of us. If you come out of a, a tradition that's um, far more liturgical or far more traditional in your stances, certain things will have been taught to you that are maybe not in Scripture, but have a hold of you. If you're... Uh, from a more of an agnostic tradition where God wasn't spoken of, you didn't really believe that God existed, that impacts how you come and you read Scripture. If you were from an, a, an abusive, over-extreme, um, I don't want to use the word Christian because I, I don't think they are, but some kind of religious, fanatic type of movement, that impacts how you come to Scripture and how you come to God. And so all of us need to recognize that in our lives, when we look back, there are things that are at play that we have to maybe unlearn and relearn what's correct and what's true. And that does not happen fast. And so you have all these Corinthian people, some of which have moved on from this and gone, okay, there's only one true God. Okay, that's, I can process that. And there's some that are like, but this doesn't make any sense. I believe Jesus is who he claimed he was. And I, and I get that, but this part of it I'm still really struggling with. The reality is, is our spiritual growth is not just a linear thing that we all grow at the exact same rate at the exact same time. And if it was, perhaps it would be a little bit easier. At least easier to relate uh, to one another. And so what Paul's trying to say is, is he changes. So this first six verses, yes, okay, you're technically correct. Here's what's going on theologically, yes. However, you need to consider the less mature brothers and sisters that are within your church that don't know these things because their spiritual growth is far more important than this, than you being technically or theologically correct about this. Now, uh, this idea of being weak in your faith, I, I think maybe that gives a, a wrong, at least in our culture right now is what that word means. It gives us a wrong picture. I think immature is probably a better word to consider. It's not that we're looking at someone who is just weak and can't do anything. It's somebody that either doesn't know any better yet or hasn't yet learned. Now, certainly there's onus on the individual that it's their job to mature. When we come to faith, we have this book right in front of us. We can open it, we can read it, we can study it, and we can grow. But the truth of the matter is if we surround ourselves with other mature Christians who can help us on that journey, we'll grow way faster because we learn far more from being in community than we do in isolation one-on-one. -on -one. Now, that is not me saying that the Word of God isn't sufficient. Don't hear me saying that. That's saying that I think God has created us in community for these reasons, because we learn effectively in that way. But when you read through this text, Paul's trying to say, look, not everyone knows this because of former associations. Their conscience is weak and so they're defiled. He's trying to say, look, you who are mature, you have a responsibility to come alongside those who are immature. And you have a responsibility to help them grow. It's just discipleship 101. Is if you want to help someone grow in their faith, 
then you have to come alongside them and help them and pray for them. And it doesn't mean that you know everything. And I think sometimes we have that misnomer that because I'm discipling someone, I'm just this super mature person. That, that's not it at all. It just means that we are entering into covenant with somebody, into a, a relationship, a partnership with them, saying we both want to grow and we both want to learn. And there's some areas that I've learned through my experiences, through what God's taken me through, that I think could help this person or that person. Richard Pratt points out something really, really good here. He says this. He's talking about the mature now. He says, They sinned by eating meat sacrificed to idols, not because of the idols, but because of the damage done to their fellow believers. Right? They sat there and went, I'm allowed to do this, so I'm going to do this. And they just didn't care about what other people might think or their traditions, their understandings, their lack of maturity in this. this. This is probably one of the biggest problems we have now in our North American mindset is that our individual rights trump everything else. Right? So when we think about the culture in which the Corinthians lived and them having to unlearn things, is think about the culture that our children are living in now. Look out for number one. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Just look out for you don't let anybody judge you. Just be true to you. All these kind of statements. They're just being bombarded at people and it's raising that individual right so it's, it doesn't matter about the collective community anymore. And that snuck its way into the church. The church is meant to be the safe space where we come and we worship God, where we learn and we grow and where we disciple and where we discipline. All these things, but all of that happens because it's in community. If I walk in with some kind of an attitude of, you can't tell me anything. You can't correct me. You don't know. I deserve this. I get to do that. We're not going to learn. We'll never learn that way. And the reality is, is that individualism has, has spoken so loudly in our culture that it, it's starting to even fray basic understandings of things. And we start to get really confused about all kinds of very basic, simple truths that Scripture teaches. And we just go, well, that, that doesn't apply to me because. And we make some kind of unrational, argue, irrational argument about something. If you think about it, Genesis 3, where sin enters the world, this is, this is the same problem, isn't it? Ultimately, it's selfishness. I, I would argue that selfishness is almost always the biggest problem that we have in our own life. I want to do this, and culture has told me that my individual rights are important, and I, here's the biggest one, I deserve to be happy. Is that a biblical thing? I once heard a teacher say it this way, is God cares way more about your holiness than your happiness. And that's so true. And, and what I've found is that the more we seek God's holiness, the more joy comes as a byproduct of that. But when we seek our own happiness, usually we end up letting ourselves down because we get things that we think we want and find out, well, actually, we didn't want that in the first place. So Paul says here, take care, verse 9, take care that this right of yours, this freedom that you have, this theological conviction that you have does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Leon Morris writes, Paul reminds the uh, reminds them that no Christian is at liberty to assert his rights if that means doing harm to other people. Richard Pratt writes, those who understand have freedom, but they also have the responsibility to use that freedom to serve others, to restrain that freedom when it threatens to damage others. Notice 
in verse 11 that Paul points out, if you act selfishly, you're actually destroying the brother or sister for whom Christ died. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? By you saying, I'm just going to do what I want because I know that it's technically right and I don't care what they think. Paul's saying, you're actually destroying them and Christ died for them. So you ought to honor them and you ought to care for them too. Chapter 9 over the next two weeks as we study through is all about Paul saying you've got to surrender your rights, the things that you should be allowed to do, the things that you technically have the freedom to do. He's saying don't think about yourself. Think about others. What's best for them? How can I help them grow? What things can I sacrifice in myself that I don't need so that they can grow? See, the whole point of Christianity is it's not about me. And so it goes in a polar opposite field from what the world is teaching right now. We need to see that. Do I deserve this? Well, probably we don't anyway, but we think we do, and so we act accordingly. When Scripture says, don't worry about yourself. Consider others more important than you. Paul even ends this section, right, by saying, look, Thus, you're doing this, you're sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak. In actuality, you're sinning against, who does it say? Christ. By you treating your brother and sister in this way, you are sinning against Christ. The issue that you think is the issue isn't actually the issue. Does that make any sense? Right? Is looking at it in this context of going, I have the right to eat this meat. Nobody can tell me differently. And, and Paul's saying, actually, you're sinning against Christ by doing that. Not because the meat is sacrificed to an idol. Because you're not caring and loving your brother and sister. You're not helping them in their spiritual maturity. And yes, hopefully all of you get to that place where you understand this. And you reach that level of maturity in this area and then you can move on. But again, that doesn't all happen in the same rate. All of us learn different things at different times. And unfortunately, our spiritual journey is not linear. Somebody said it this way the other day. I don't remember who I was talking to, but they said it's kind of like a, like a saw, right, with all these ridges. There's ups, there's downs, and there's a lot of probably cuts along the way. Paul finishes the sentence, right, by saying this. If food makes my brother stumble, I'm never going to eat meat. Lest I make my brother stumble. Notice what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm not going to ever eat meat. Saying, if this causes someone in my faith community and some uncertainty and some difficulty in their conscience, I am not going to do it because I care more about them than I do about my rights. The right that I have to eat meat. And, and I think if we looked at it this way, is that is a pretty insignificant right. And if we're going to elevate some of those things because, frankly, I want what I want and you don't get to tell me what I want because technically I'm right. If we have that kind of attitude... How are we going to help others grow? All we're showing them is that we care more about us than them. What the truth of the gospel is, is that the gospel is not about us. It is for us. We need to realize that Jesus, right? So you read through Philippians. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He could have held on to that and said, I'm not going to earth. I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to limit myself. I'm not going to go through pain and hurt and heartache for these people. But it says he willingly went to the cross because he cared 
enough about his creation that he was willing to let go of what his rights were. Now, I want to end here with something that's probably more confrontational than I want to be, but I think it's necessary. In my seminary class right now, I'm reading, well, I've read one and I'm in the process of reading another one on relational conflict, and it makes me realize just how bad I am at that. And perhaps when we read those books, that's what they're designed to do, is to help us grow in that. As I want to be very clear about what the world that we're facing right now, the, the condition that we find ourselves in, our culture's problem right now, is many, many, many Christians are being tricked by Satan into thinking that COVID is the only thing that matters. And we are starting to lose sight of what we as Christians are called to do. The job has not changed. We are to declare Christ and to make him known. We are to honor God with our actions. None of that changes because of our circumstances. Over the last 2,000 years since Jesus was here, every single generation had unique challenges and obstacles. This happens to be ours. But I have seen, especially online, more Christians absolute at war with each other because of how they want to respond to the restrictions, whether they should or they shouldn't, and all of those things. I have seen churches falling apart, fracturing. I have a friend who's a pastor who's been in a church for 21 years who's at his very wit's end because he's ready He doesn't even know how to bring peace because there's so much conflict and fighting within people who are supposed to love one another. I am not trying to suggest that COVID is not an important issue that we need to consider and that you shouldn't figure out how you want to respond. What I am trying to say is if your rights, if you think I should be able to fill in the blank, and that causes you anger and frustration or hatred, and you start to fight with other Christians, the issue is not COVID. The issue is you and your heart. All of us, all of us struggle with this from time to time. Let me just say it this way. COVID is, as Ernie said, it's going to go away at some point, in some way. But there'll be another challenge. There'll be another hurt. There'll be another obstacle. There'll be another difficulty. The truth is that our generation, we really haven't had much as far as world conflict goes. But just look at the past. Over and over and over, there's many of those types of things where they seem all-consuming. They seem like they're invading every aspect of our lives. But we as Christians, our mission, our role, our purpose, none of that has changed. And we've been distracted and we've been deceived. And we've bought into this, this is the most important thing right now that I'm facing, and it's not. It is not. When Paul says, do not let your rights, in verse 9, do not let your rights become a stumbling block to the weak. He's literally saying to those who are supposedly mature, care for your brother and sister more than you care for yourself. That's what we're called to do in all kinds of areas. And we could be technically right, we could be theologically right and miss the whole point. Now again, I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't be technically or theologically correct. I I think Paul does that in the letters. He writes to, to clear up theology, to correct bad teaching and bad doctrine, but not at the expense of loving one another. If you know you're right about some theological conviction when somebody disagrees with you, you get angry, 
there's a problem in your heart. And I don't mean to point the finger. That's true of me too. All of us struggle with these kinds of things. So may we, we don't deal with food sacrifice to idols. We do have all kinds of other issues where we elevate our own rights, where we push people, we alienate people aside who disagree with us. When Paul says, no, you need to love and you need to consider their spiritual maturity as way more important than what your rights are and what you think you deserve. May we desire to love others in a way that honors God. Remember what Jesus said is they, speaking of the world, they will know that you are my disciples by what? The love that you have for one another. And right now, in many churches, people are watching those churches, looking at it and going, I don't, have, I don't want anything to do with that. We ought to exist in our community so that they see, men. here's a group of people that while they may have different opinions, and they probably have 37 different opinions on how to deal with this, they still love, care, and have concern for one another. May we love each other the way that God loves us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this very, very practical few verses of Scripture here for us. And it, and it can be easy to just kind of breeze on right past them thinking, oh, I don't have to deal with that issue. We don't, we don't have meat sacrificed to idols. But the principles in the statements that Paul's making are far greater reaching than just that one issue. And God, we know that many of us, well, we all, all of us struggle in many different ways. God, help us to not get distracted from what our mission and our purpose as a follower of Jesus is. We are to glorify you. We are to make Christ known and we are to love one another effectively. Help the circumstances that we find ourselves in right now, as difficult as they are, and I, I'm not trying to pretend that they're not, but they have not changed our mission or our purpose. So God, may we focus on how we can honor you, what we can do to minister to people, and how we can give up our rights for the sake of others. God, may we try and find this balance of, of theologically finding truth and yet always holding the love and the greater good of the other person that's across from us. May we hold those together. God, would you give us hearts of grace and mercy? As we interact with those who we disagree with, would we be compassionate and gentle and patient? But would we hold truth high all at the same time? God, thank you for what you are doing in our lives. Thank you that you are still in control. Thank you that you are on the throne. And that this challenge that's in front of us right now, that these difficulties that we're facing, they are opportunities for us to grow and they are opportunities for us to share the true message of the gospel with people. Would you give us hearts and minds to be able to do that? God, we love you. We're so grateful for all that you're doing in our lives. Continue to imprint these truths upon our hearts now. Amen. Thank you for joining us again this morning. We look forward to seeing you next week. If you would like to attend in person, please do register, and we'll look forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye.